live from the upstairs bar at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in glamorous Soho, London, England, it's time for the Anglo-American edition of Spoiler Country. Starring the knowledgeable hosts John and Kendrick, mixing their usual speedball cocktail of comics, music, movies and popular culture. Citizens of the world, I implore you, it's time for Spoiler Country. Hey, all right. Welcome back to Spartan Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That right now is an empty chair, which is very odd for me. But I'm doing the solo today mono, and that's okay. But we're going to make it quick because we're going to jump right in to our, well, we try to do these quarterly or as many times as we can, but our another interview with Andrew Sumner, the executive VP of Titan, uh, which you guys all know with Doctor Who merchandise. So if you buy a Doctor Who t-shirt at Spencer's, that's from Titan. They have those amazing vinyl figurines. They have a plethora of comic books, Doctor Who, Mike Hammer, and a bunch more. They have an amazing coffee book out right now, which is the art of Into the Spider-Verse from uh, Sony, which is amazing. But sit back, relax, and listen to the sultry sounds of Andrew Sumner, because the guy is amazing and he has a billion stories. And I think you're going to really like today's conversation. We're here with Mr. Sumner of Titan Merchandise and Titan Entertainment. And there's, you know, everybody knows the vinyls, the t-shirts, the the comic books, all that glorious awesomeness that is Titan. What do you guys got going on nowadays, Andrew? Oh, it's it's a pleasure to be here, gents. Oh, well, yeah, we you know, we're, we're rocking into the uh we're rocking into 2019 on the on the on the Titan merchandise from We've just released our second wave of Game of Thrones Titans, oh, and um, and nice. yeah, they have just like uh, they have just been uh, released into US retail, and I'm a, uh, I'm a and so you, Game they'll, of Thrones fan. they'll they'll be available at the at the usual places like Hot Topic. They're available now at Hot Topic, I believe. They're going to be available at. Um, they're going to be available at uh, Target um, this year as well, so they're they're rolled out there. So uh, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously the the final series is just about to air shortly. Yeah. So uh, so it's all timed in with that. We did a we did a great exclusive recently with uh, the Geek Fuel subscription box guys, where we did a like a four and a half inch um, glow in the dark uh, translucent version of of Viserion in his white form. So that's good. And uh, that's awesome. and then we're just love, about to release cool. a six and a half inch version of Viserion uh in uh in with some glow in the dark detailing. That's with uh, with Hot Topic. So uh yeah, there's lots happening there. I've got some awesome new Titan stuff uh coming out that I can't quite tell you about <laughs> right <laughs> now. I mean when we finish recording this, I can tell you guys what it is. Yeah, yeah. Next time we talk, I can talk about it properly. But I want to make sure I've actually turned the microphone off before I tell you, so I don't like mess it up. Yeah, and start right. you know broadcasting like radio free Europe. Do you know what I mean? Um, but uh, but yeah, so we've got that, and then we've basically got um, two different things we're doing: the Titans vinyl collectibles format uh, throughout the course of this year, and we're gonna we're gonna announce one of those within the next two or three weeks. And um, and then we're going to announce another one in about a month's time. But it's stuff that I'm really, really excited about. That's awesome. Can't can't wait to do it, and I can't wait to tell you guys about it. 
Nice. I'm excited to hear That's, about it. <laughs> I'm super excited to hear what that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'll tell you at the end. And then we're, we're also, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're rocking forward with a comics program. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of new stuff coming out there. One of the things that I'm most excited about personally is um, there used to be a great uh, comic book series by um, by uh, an, a writer called Max Allen Collins, who's a guy we've talked about before. He uh, he writes My Camera these days, and uh, and he also uh, he wrote the My Camera comic book I turned you guys on to a while ago. Yep. Well, he used to write Batman, but back in the eighties, he did a series that I think was originally for Eclipse. I, that certainly was published by Eclipse when I used to read it. And um, it's a, a kind of noir detective series called Ms. Tree about a, uh, a female private yeah. detective. Mystery, yeah, Mystery, Mystery Quarterly, yes. yeah. Yeah, so it's fantastic, fantastic book. So uh, it's written by Max and um, and it's drawn by Terry Beatty. Uh, who, they're the guys who also created Wild Dog for DC Comics and Wild Dog in a slightly different format turns up in the Arrow show now and again. Um, he's one of Arrow's like team of vigilantes. Well, anyway, sort of Max and Terry created the series Mystery, which you know, and were, were at Titan, were starting to do collective ed- editions of the complete Mystery, and the, awesome. the first uh, the first edition is going to be launching at uh, San Diego Comic Con. So I'm really really excited about that. Can't, oh, that's can't awesome. wait! Absolutely can't wait. So that'd be awesome. Yeah, you know, and we're keeping busy with everything else as we tend to do. You know, so there's a lot of uh there's a lot of uh you know different books projects and and all that kind of stuff rolling along. You know, um that, as you know we do we have a lot of fiction lists at Titan and we do a lot of uh a lot of great coffee table books and graphic novels and whatnot. Yeah, so um so we've just released uh, a, a, a couple of fiction titles. One's called Other Words for Smoke by uh, Sarah, um, Sarah Maria Griffin. And um, we've just released a book called uh, The Near Witch by V. Schwab also. And uh, we've got some cool... Um, we've got a cool uh, Firefly novel, uh, an original novel by a guy called James Lovegrove. Oh, and cool. that's, that's getting released on the 19th of March. Yeah, and uh, we've got we've got an ongoing series that we published called um, called uh, the Embers of War, and uh, the latest in that series, which is called Fleet of Knives, has just literally been published. So that was published on uh, on the nineteenth of February two thousand nineteen. So we've all always got lots of fiction stuff coming along. And then there's our kind of coffee table non-fiction program as well with the large format non-coffee table books. I think one of them I spoke to you guys about before, which is we did a Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse oh, yeah. movie. We actually talked uh-huh. about that a couple of times on our um, yeah, on right show. On. Yeah. So if you boys haven't had your, your copies of that yet, which I'm fairly certain you haven't now that we're talking about it again, I'll make sure you, I'll make sure you get them. Um, oh, that'd be awesome. Uh, uh, but that is a phenomenal book. That's what, it's one of the best things we've ever done. But in, on the kind of large coffee table format books, we've also just published um, the Firefly Encyclopedia by uh, Monica Valentinelli. And, uh, and then not quite in the, uh, in the science fiction um, wheelhouse and fantasy wheelhouse, but very much in my personal wheelhouse. Uh, we've just published the Orson Welles portfolio, which is uh, sketches and drawings um, 
by Orson Welles in association with the Welles estate. It's been written and compiled by a guy called Simon Braun, but we've had kind of unparalleled access to... Because uh, Welles wasn't just a visionary filmmaker and actor. He was also a, a tremendously uh, natural artist. And, uh, you know, he studied at the Art of Institute, uh, the Art Institute of Chicago for one summer, and he continued to draw and paint throughout his entire life. And the majority of his artwork, including costume and set designs for his films and theatre work, that's been unavailable, unavailable to the public, but it's all collected in this, like, awesome 192-page hardback edition that we've just published. And that, if you're into Orson Welles or, or people like him, that is just phenomenal. Yeah, he was. That sounds amazing. He was like the that complete, sounds so cool. Yeah, he was like the complete package when it comes to an artist. Oh yeah, he was. He, I mean, he was everything. You know, uh, he absolutely was everything all at the same time. He was. You know, uh, you know he was the voice of Unicron in Transformers, the cartoon, the animated he was. movie. Well, back well in the actually, 80s. I've got a feeling that that is literally his final credit. I think uh, so too. Most certainly, that is the last thing that he ever did. Yeah, and he was great in it. I mean, he has that. What a way to go out. That was just like, what a way to go out, Transformers. <laughs> but you know what? That was the highlight of his career. I was 12 when that came out. You know, 13. I was. It came out the summer I turned 13. And that. And I was a huge Transformer fan because it was it was completely written towards my my genre, my um, my generation. Yeah. And so when you watch that movie, you you know, Hasbro <laughs> was like, we didn't. We weren't ready for the backlash of killing off Optimus Prime because they they killed him off so that they can re- introduce the new toy line. Yeah, right. Um, and and yeah, people yeah. freaked out. Like I remember watching it. And it was like that was the first time like like a character that I watched every single day or or knew everything about died on screen in front of me, and I was like, "What the fuck did I just watch?" Yeah, right on. <laughs> but what? But I remember hearing Unicorn's voice, and I'm like, God, that sounds so familiar, even at 13. And then yeah. when it pulled up, I'm like, oh, my God, that was Orson Welles. Yeah, I mean, he was doing a bunch of interesting things around that period of time because, of course, he did a bunch of ad campaigns for, like, he did uh, he did um, the voiceovers for the uh, for the Carlsberg uh, beer brand here in, in, in Europe and in the UK. I mean, I know it's drunk over there, but he did, he did the ads. And then he did all that Paul Masson, those Paul Masson wine ads, all that kind of stuff. There's some great stuff that you can find online, which is outtakes of, it's, they're easy to find on YouTube, which is outtakes of Wells recording these adverts and absolutely busting the chops of the casting directors who are coaching him on his performance. And, uh, <laughs> can you imagine and, coaching you know, Wells? <laughs> oh, well, this is it. This is the, that's exactly the point. And he's reading the scripts and basically he's just stopping halfway through going, but this is terrible. This, this makes no sense. You know, and it's, it's, it, they're great. You can, uh, you can find it on, on YouTube. It's well worth listening to, oh, but around that, that period out. of time, Transformers the movie was actually released in '86, and uh, it was it's his last official kind of credit. There's a there's a Henry Jaglom film called Someone to Love that was released in '87, but he filmed that a little bit of time beforehand. Yeah. But his second to last credit, funnily enough, was um, introducing an episode of Moonlighting. You know the detective show with yeah, uh, with Bruce Willis Shepherd, and Civil Shepard. 
Yeah. And there's famously a 1985 episode of Moonlighting, which is mostly uh, set in black and white. It's called The Dream Sequence Always Rings Twice. And Orson Welles, who knew Sybil Shepherd because she used to go out with and star in films for Peter Bogdanovich. And Peter Bogdanovich was one of Orson Welles' best mates. So he agreed to do the, uh, the intro for that episode. The other interesting thing he did right towards the end of his career in that period of time, I mean, interesting, you view, you, me or you guys, if, you, you know, <laughs> if you're on the, the pop culture sponge end of the spectrum, right. is that uh, in, um, in Magnum P.I., and I'm talking about the original incarnation, yep. although this character actually exists in the current incarnation as well, um, one of the ways in which Magnum, who's just a Dianet Hill private eye, manages to kind of live in a in, on a wealthy estate and drive a Ferrari in, in uh, Oahu is Robin that, Masters. Uh, he, he lives on the estate of Robin Masters, exactly. And um, uh, that's exactly it. And Orson Welles was the voice of Robin Masters. Oh, nice. On Magnum PI. I think, yeah, so I whenever, that. whenever he showed up, it was always, he would always look from, a, you'd only ever see him from a distance. And he would look a bit like Truman Capote, right. like a shortest version with a shortish guy with a kind of white suit and a hat on. But his voice was always done by Orson Welles. Oh, that's hilarious. Kind of reminded me when I watched, because my dad was a huge Magnum PI fan back back in the day. So we watched them. I watched all those. And, oh, me too. Yeah. I'm a and, massive fan. Yeah, they're great. I mean, really. Yeah. And, I think they're underrated because they. If you watch them now, they actually stand the test of time. They were yeah. written well, and I think it's one of the few series in the '80s that had an ongoing storyline throughout the whole thing. You know, yes. what I mean, the characters yeah. grew. You, you know, you found out more about them. It was, it was really well done. But yeah, uh, I mean, I mean, it's a time when when TV episode, uh, TV was uh, TV drama was a cookie cutter. Well, you know, we're living in the golden age of television now, where this television is, is you know more more artistically credible ninety ninety nine percent of the time than movies are, right? Yep. But back then, it was completely the other way around. But uh, but Magnum is is head and shoulders above a lot of what was going on, yep. and, and that's got a lot to do with the uh, the creator and the showrunner Donald P. Belisario. And um, he's the guy who brought that level of writing to that show. There are a couple of people who, in the 70s and 80s, the the name attached to a TV show would be like a guarantee of quality. Right. There's essentially Donald Belisario, and there's Stephen J. Cannell, and there's there's also um, Roy Huggins, who's the guy who originally created The Fugitive and whatnot. And those guys, if you ever saw their name on anything, you can be guaranteed that the level of writing was way above everything else. And Magnum certainly did have a through line throughout its life, had characters and plot lines that kind of rolled on. Yeah. They would call things back from like a, oh, yeah. a season before, two seasons before. No one Absolutely did that. Absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, they, they, there's, there's a famously a, a, character, a character who turned up uh, sort of irregularly in that show called Mac, who was a friend of... Um, Who's a friend of Magnum's? One of his other war buddies, in addition yeah. to the guys, in in addition to Rick and T. Sear in every week, and um, there was a there's a story arc in which that guy got killed, and then he meets his doppelganger later on, and that guy becomes involved in the show. You know, it's there's lots of interesting stuff going on, and then at the end of season seven, like Magnum gets killed off and goes to heaven, but they get they get renewed for an additional eight, eight series. Yeah. So they have to figure out a way to bring him back to life and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and and it has, a, it has a fascinating kind of bittersweet um, climax. What, I hope what, do you, this isn't, what do you think of the sorry, new one? Sorry, carry on, mate. 
No, sorry. Oh, I I, I, yeah, no, actually, I, I'll I say fascinating bittersweet climax because in the end, uh, Magnum ends up um, having the opportunity to be the full-time parent to his daughter, but he needs a level of solidity that his life as a slacker in, in uh, Vegas, uh, sorry, not Vegas, in, in, in Hawaii hasn't had in Honolulu. Right. So he, re- so he rejoins the Navy. And um, there's, this, there's this really interesting kind of bittersweet moment where uh, the, the final episode, at the end of the titles, it, the show doesn't end with the titles. It then cuts back to uh, to the um, sort of groundskeeper's house that Magnum lives in. And Magnum's there inside his lounge, all in his navy whites. And with a straight face, he just kind of says, bye, and, and clicks the remote of the TV. And that fades the screen to black. You know what I mean? Yeah, and uh, it's 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 it, it it's just a very interesting way to end it all. Right. Uh, as to your question about the modern one, what do I think? Yeah, Actually, yeah I was it's wondering really what you good. thought. I I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I think for what it is, for one of those like Peter Lenkoff shows on CBS, which have got to be a number of things, namely very high pace, very fast paced, and have got to tell a story in like 42 minutes. Right. I actually I actually think it's very good. And I think, um, to be honest, I think his version of Hawaii Five-0 is much more watchable than the original Jack Lord Hawaii Five-0 is. Yeah. You know, because uh, Jack, the Jack Lord Hawaii Five-0 is really badly dated now because if you've watched one episode... Yeah, you've lo- you've watched all hundred plus episodes, um, so I think that's an improvement. I actually think the original material on, on Magnum PI is really really good, as we've just said. Yeah. But nonetheless, I think I think that's a great show. Actually, as as chewing gum television goes, <laughs> as light hearted TV, I think it's a great way to spend. I mean, forty two minutes. As you know, I travel a lot, and I've I'm completely up to date with that show because it's a great thing just to plug into on a flight. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I like Jay it. Hernandez is really good. And Jay Hernandez is good. I wish he was a little bigger, just because Magnum. Uh, yeah, Tom Selleck is a huge it's man. It's fucking huge. Yeah, yeah, he's fucking huge. <laughs> and actually, it, yeah, I know. And he, 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 as big as TC was, Magnum's always taller than him. Whereas now, yeah. TC, TC in the current one dwarfs Jay Hernandez. Yeah, but what what Jay Hernandez has got. That that well, he's that Selleck the had, he's got that swagger and that extremely, you know, extreme natural good looks coupled yeah. with charm. Yeah, and you like him. Yeah, you know, and clearly that's why they cast him. Yeah, he's know? hard and, not to like. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's, he, he's supremely likable. Yeah, it, I like that show. I like the change Higgins to the girl. Oh, I love it. I yeah. think she's and she's great. And she's amazing. She's fucking awesome. She's purred it to weeks. Yeah. So uh, she has a sister who's um, a very, I mean, she's English, obviously, but in the UK, her sister is very well known and stars in a kind of World War II crime series called Foil's War. Uh, oh, I know Foil's War. Well, so so basically, if you've ever watched Foil's War, who's about, movie, you know. Right? Not too long ago? I, I, yeah, that's right. He's a civilian detective working during the war era. Um, he has like an assistant who's a, like a, a you know a, a female member of the armed forces, like a whack or whatever. And that's that actress is Honeysuckle Weeks, who's Perdita Weeks' old older sister. It's just an interesting first names. Perdita yeah, and no, Honeysuckle. the family is really into that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's definitely some interesting name choices going on in that family. Yeah, but it, it, Johnny, if you haven't watched, I don't know. I think you might have been too young to watch the original Magnum PI. I watched reruns. You watch reruns, and then the new yeah. one. It's it's actually a lot of fun, and it's. it's I haven't watched the new one at all, but I've heard about. Yeah, it. it's actually yeah. it's actually really good. I I I'm, I really much enjoy it. I agree. I mean, guys, I'd recommend it. You know, yeah, I, I've I've really enjoyed it. 
So and, and, with the Sumner recommendation, I'm a tough crowd because because you know those reboot shows, I rarely watch them because I love the originals. Yeah, you know, often so much, but. I actually think they've done a very credible and an enjoyable magnum, and it's worth watching every week. They just updated and, it. Yeah, they, they, that's all they did. I mean, they actually, unlike Hawaii, Hawaii Five-O, where they changed quite a lot of the DNA. Yeah. Because you can't have this kind of stentorian Jack Lord figure booking Dano, you know, who's completely perfect and everything. They actually improved that show with Magnum PI because none of it was broken in the first place. It's such a great show to begin with. They've literally just updated it. Yeah. They have cast nice. it really well. Nice. Yeah. I mean, Zach Knight, who plays Rick, is really, really good. He's the guy who was in that, that great, that awesome... Um, a comedy show Happy Endings a couple of seasons ago. Have you ever watched that? I didn't watch that. I know of it. I haven't watched it yet. Oh, it's great. But I think I yeah, will. It's really I think good. it's on Netflix. Yeah. I yeah, pretty sure. I, I think it is too. Or Hulu. I, yeah. I would, I would definitely recommend that show, gents. It's very, very funny. Check it. So I'm watching. <laughs> so 20 years <laughs> ago, and I can't believe it's been 20 years, Buffy the Vampire Slayer came out, written yeah. by Joss Whedon. Yeah. I didn't watch it then. Yeah, I was in my I was in my mid to late twenties, yeah. and uh, I was chasing girls and and having fun, and I wasn't. Of interested. course, as you do. Yeah, both both fine pursuits, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> right. And I <laughs> I just wasn't interested in it. I was like, I, I, I mean, I've seen episodes as you did because it was on for seven years. You're gonna see, you know, and I knew what it was and all that kind of stuff. As a matter of fact, I wasn't a fan of it, and that made me not watch Firefly when it came out because I'm like, oh, that's written by the same guy that did. Uh, Buffy, I don't think I'll be into it. Even though I love the Buffy, the Vampire Slayer movie, because when that came out in like 92 or 93 or whatever, I had a huge crush on Christy Swanson. So I was like, I'm going to watch oh, that. Yeah. And then uh, it had, you, yeah. you and any other sensible, um, you know, red-blooded straight male. Yeah, right? sure. And then it had, uh, and it had Pee Wee Herman was, that was his movie after the whole incident happened. Which is bullshit that yes, he was. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, bullshit that he sure. lost his career over this. He's thing. he he. You know, he's the bad guy. Uh, he's the bad guy vampire, isn't he? Yeah, 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 he, yeah. He's the uh, well, Rutger Howard plays the big bad in the movie, and then yeah, but Pee Wee Herman has he has the the after credit scene where he keeps dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then there's there's also you know the man, uh, the myth, the legend, um, uh, the male lead in that show is. I said the man, the myth, the legend. Now I can't remember his name, even though Luke no. Perry, Luke, Luke Perry, Luke, yeah, yeah. Luke Perry, yeah, too right, yeah, yeah. exactly. He's passed on, yeah, it's just passed. Crazy yeah. that he passed away. He was so young, not so young, so young. I mean, oh, I mean, I'm only so young. I'm, I'm like six years away from his age, and it was I, like I'm, what? Old, I'm older than him by a number of years. Yeah, so it was very, very strange. It's sad. It's sad. And so such a fit looking bloke as well. Yeah, yeah. But it you goes know, to show you know an extra weight or any of that. That the stroke stuff, you just have to really pay attention to that blood pressure, make sure that you're you're yeah. doing things the right way, and it's just pay attention to your diet. So true, mean, man. Obviously, his genes were keeping his metabolism great to keep him fit, but he's probably just eating like shit. Mm, yeah. You know, I don't know. I mean, that's it's just it doesn't make sense, and it's just it's sad because he I understand that he was like one of the few guys in Hollywood that you could just go up to and start talking. And he was very effervescent and very like charming to that effect, you know? So yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. That's always it. So back to Buffy. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't watch it. So then I was like, I told Johnny a couple weeks ago, I think I'm going to watch Buffy. And he's like, great, because he's a big Buffy fan. And what I've watched it all multiple yeah. times. So what got me though, was Josh Whedon just signed a contract with boom studios and they've relaunched the Buffy verse. 
which I'm wondering how this is going to work because Disney now owns Buffy from the Fox deal. Um, but so I so I got the first uh, four comic books, started reading it. I was like, I I am actually really enjoying this. I think I'll go watch the the show. Did you were you a fan of the show back in the day? Yes, very much so. I, I wasn't an obsessive watcher of it. I kind of dipped in and out of it because I didn't watch it at first. Yeah. For exactly the reasons you've just posited, actually. Yeah. Which is that I I liked the movie and I thought and at that point, you know, generally speaking, with the exception of MASH, um, TV show adaptations of films were never very good. And they certainly went, weren't an improvement over the source material. Right. Like Buffy, the TV show was. So I didn't watch it. At, I watched the first one and then I didn't watch it for about two, three seasons. But, but around the point that uh, Buffy and Angel were both like in their ascendancy in the show. Yeah. I then did end up watching quite a lot of it. So, and I, I, I also watched all of Angel, which I really loved. Yeah. So Angel was amazing. So, <laughs> I have to tell you, Andrew, I had a problem with the first three seasons of Buffy because of the Angel character. Yeah. I, um, so I have a girl that I take care of. She's five. She's not my biological yeah. daughter, but she's my daughter. You know what I mean? I, yeah, I don't right. think of her of any, as anything else but my kid. And, and yes. um, I couldn't help but look at Angel as a pedophile. And the way he ah, going, and he was grooming her. And the thing that got me was like, it was the complacency of all the adults around her that not one scene talks about him being so much older and she's 16 and not, not 18, not 19, not 20, not in her college, but 16 years old. She's not even done growing as a human yet. And he is courting. He, they're having, they they end up having sex and it was like, and then they have a scene where they talk about when she's like 14 years old and he's watching her from the car, knowing that he already loves her and she's not even the Slayer yet. And I'm just like, oh, my mind is blown. And I'm like, why isn't anybody talking the fact that they are showing this on TV, making it seem like it's a totally okay? Because I know when my kid turns 16 and some 26 year old is trying to get down her pants, I'm going to freak out on that guy. <laughs> I, I want to be there when that happens, by the way, mate. <laughs> John, you, it's your job to video record that one. I will record that. Film I will it, record man. it. <laughs> I might go to jail over the recording, but it'll be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll share it privately only. Right. Okay. <laughs> but, I mean, have you ever – and it's funny because I called this out on Twitter, and we literally had a bunch of responses where people were like, no, that's – wait, well, no, because uh, – why did you you just ruin my childhood? <laughs> and I'm like, how did you not notice? Even at 17 or 18 years old, I would have I would have caught this and been like, what is happening? Well, I'm like and like I've watched that show, you know, more than once all the way through. And like, I mean, obviously, I knew that she was younger, he was older, but I never like the whole grooming aspect never clicked. Yeah, I mean, I, until he said it, I, I, I like, shit. I've described that as a as an utterly um, uh, viewing experience ruining a uh, piece of uh, observation. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> So I'm glad that I've watched it all now because I, I don't think I would have the appetite to do so with that with that with that very clear commentary banging around inside my head. Do you know what I mean? I'm sorry. I mean, I, I mean, overall, I got over it, right? And it's like yeah, okay, yeah, And yeah. then once she's become into her college years, and then I'm like, okay, why couldn't they just start her off in college and and avoid that? Like, what writer didn't stand up and say, "Wow, we are sh grooming a pedophile here"? Does anybody yeah, but not see this? I, I mean. 
I mean, of course, you know, you're just describing the Twilight movie series as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, God, yeah. And that's exactly everybody the says thing. the same thing. Like, and well, they it's do that kind Twilight. of more. It's I, I feel it's more blatant in there. Although you know, I, I think it's. Uh, I, I don't think you can deny the uh, the 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 keen point that you're making. Certainly, you know, as as uh, as as a man with two now grown up kids, if you know uh, an immortal uh, vampire being groomed with my daughter, age sixteen, you know, I think I would have been wading in there with the crucifixes and the garlic and the yeah. silver bullets. So you know, I, I can't argue with you, man. <laughs> yeah, it's just weird. Well, like, you mentioned Twilight. You mentioned Twilight. It's, it's more blatant in that movie because not only is they are they sticking around going back to high school all the time. There's a whole aspect of Jacob the werewolf imprinting on their unborn oh, child man. as his I mean, future lover, just, and that pisses know, me off. I don't even want to talk about. That. I mean, that's just <laughs> I, I, just fucking ridiculous. Just so ridiculous. You know, it's. I, I mean, have you ever had the misfortune of actually reading those books and then then reading the, like the way the way they kind of resolve and I mean the movies when it gets the final the adaptation of the final book they really soft pedal a lot of the batshit crazy things are in the the, the final uh, book edition of Twilight the final instalment book wise is just nuts you know it's it just there's so much stuff in there that's like what you know it, it yeah absolutely and you've touched upon some of it and that's not even the most batshit crazy thing that's that happened you <laughs> no, know it's, it's not. crazy that, that those that, those books are insane. When when you read stuff like this and you watch it, I, I I'm all for artistic freedom. You know what I mean. You should be able to write about the things you want to write about, and there's stories that people are going to be interested in. But there's a part of me that that this is there's a small part of me that goes that this comes across. This is something in the writer's mind already. You know what I mean? And they're writing it out, and it might be a way for them to release it and let go of it. You know, I'm I've I've purged it from my for my um my consciousness or my my ego I guess but then there's like yeah but you're you're putting it out here and now I because the fan base at that time were teenage girls mostly yeah and Johnny yep for sure teenage girls and Johnny yeah but <laughs> but it's just weird you know I I don't know I, I even as as an apparent I guess I would be watching that and I'd be like I don't like you watching this because you're it's making it seem like it's okay and you'll be okay with it yeah, no, I, I know. I, I, I do think you're onto something, mate. I really do. <laughs> you know what's funny is you said you, you've you've made a comment that that kills the the uh, the the show for me, and it's yeah. funny because you, did you ever watch The Big Bang Theory? Some yes, people love it. Some absolutely. People, uh, oh, you're going to do the same. Are you going to do the same for the Big Bang Theory, mate? Have no, 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 Bang not at all. Killer coming. But the Big Bang. <laughs> Welcome to Rooting Shows. Yeah, right? <laughs> the Big Bang Theory did that for me for Raiders of the Lost Ark. They have a whole. They have a whole episode about it, where oh, so okay, so I've seen every episode of The Big Bang Theory, but clearly, I, I this didn't imprint on me in the same Amy way. Amy tells she, it. no, wait, wait, wait. Before you do it, this is going to ruin that movie for you. I guarantee yeah. you. Okay, so I, I can live with that. Okay, I've seen it okay. so many times. Yeah, I might never watch it. Sheldon time shows Amy the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and he's very excited to show her this movie because it's one of his all-time favorite movies. Yeah, they get done, and he's so excited, and, he, and he's waiting for her reaction. She's like, "Man." It was all right. He's like, how can you not be all right? And she goes, well, the ending of the movie would have been the same with or without Indiana Jones. The Germans would have found the talisman. They would have found the Ark. They would have opened the Ark. They all would have died. Indiana Jones had no bearing on the outcome of the movie. (laughs) It's so true. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, shit, she's right. Yeah, yeah. 
it's so true. But actually, do you know why that doesn't bother me? Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad I feel this way. And I know I feel this way instinctively because um, sometimes in life, it's not about the outcome. It's about how you get there. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's absolutely right. He achieves nothing. But the way he achieves nothing is brilliant to watch. <laughs> and, and his instincts are heroic the whole way along. And, and actually what he finds out about how totally irrelevant his actions have been, you could only find that out by being there right at the end. Right. Yeah, so, right. so that is true. But it doesn't stop him being a noble and heroic figure. So are they doing another effort? They're doing another Indiana Jones. Yeah, I, I believe they are. I mean, I think it's a terrible idea, personally, because, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the truth is that uh, I think you can argue that um, that that I could I would certainly argue that the Indiana Jones sequels have nearly always been a tale of dilution. So the, the first film... That's true. When it first came out, I, I was such a huge fan of it. And interestingly, when it opened in the UK, uh, which is in 90, 1982, I believe, yep. um, in the middle of 82, so that was a year I went away to university, um, it was not a big hit in the London, in the British cinema. Massive. On its first go-around. I know yeah. it was a huge hit in the US, but it wasn't a huge hit over here. It was it was very well-reviewed. And, of course, I, I was... Uh, I was going to see everything at the cinema then, so I went to see it. But by the time I got to uh, college in the September of that year, that was the year that home video rental in the UK began to really um, take off. So over the course of the next year, on through word of mouth and through video, it went bananas. Everybody saw it then. And there were other earlier films in the UK that hadn't hit big, but it became the original big video hits. The Blues Brothers would be a good example. Yeah. National Lampoon's Animal House would be a good example. Porky's. Films in the UK. Yeah, exactly. Porky's did well at the cinema though, but, but those other films, you know, didn't do as well as they had in the States. Um, so, but I was a real um, Raiders of the Lost Ark evangelist. And I was like, look, you know, if you see this film, just do me a favor. Even if you think it's a period piece, and because a lot of the cultural reference points weren't that interesting to young English people in like the punk rock era. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And an action film, something that looked like a James Bond film, but was actually set in the 30s, is like, why would you go and see that? And I used to say to everybody, look, just go and see it and see it up until the point that Indiana Jones gets chased through the market and wait until he has and well wait until he gets attacked by a swordsman <laughs> wait until that moment and if you want to leave after that just leave because you're not going to like it what of the course, most classic scenes in cinema history that's the moment such a great that, scene that's the moment I, and i remember distinctly seeing it with audiences for the first time that that's the point at which everybody was utterly turned onto the film. When when he actually guns the swordsman down, that's the bit that really gets everybody. Yeah. And then everybody's along for the whole ride after that. Only done because Harrison Ford had dysentery. <laughs> exactly. And, and such a much such a big laugh. One of the biggest laughs you'll ever see in any film. Of course, nowadays everybody's seen it, so you can't get that response. But back back in the day, man, people loved that sequence. Yeah. So so, you know, conceptually, I think Raise the Lost Ark is a perfect film. Um, I think uh, I think Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is is it's all action, but the quality of the movie is way below yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then and then, you know, the third movie comes back a bit, but it's still nowhere near that lightning in the bottle that Raiders of the Lost Ark no. Raiders of the Lost Ark has. And then I, I actually think that they should never have made 
the uh, like the Crystal Skulls um, sequel. I think that that just there's so much about that that I don't like, you know. And uh, I mean, what's great about the original three is there's very little CGI on show. Do you know what I mean? When in when in the the fourth one they started using like there's that whole what the fuck sequence you know driving through the jungle with um with Shia LaBeouf you know swinging from the trees like Tarzan do you know what I mean yeah you know I mean at that point it's like what the fuck you know, it's ridiculous yeah I, never, I, mean, I never, saw, never saw that one I mean it, it's it's all about uh, yeah I mean suspending your disbelief is very important in these movies and in it's hard Bond to suspend movies. it during that scene. But once it they start going that far over the top, once people start doing stuff, you know, I mean, I'm happy to watch James Bond, for example, yeah. take his motorcycle along the bridge of a building in Morocco at 90 miles an hour and not fall off after, even though he dri- drives about a mile and a half along that roof. You, you know, because it's somebody's actually done that in real time. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's not achieved via CGI, and 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 certainly if there's if the CGI involved, like you know, they're hiding things that make it a wider driveway than it really was. You know, it's actually still be there's a level of reality to it. Once you start using digital compositing to do stuff that just can't be fucking done. That was, you know, what I mean, it's, a, it's, it's like ridiculous. it's like Christopher Nolan said with Batman. It's like you know, use use CGI to enhance practical effects. Don't right. replace them. Yeah, you can't which is, of course, which is of course what Christopher Nolan really understands. For example, you know what I mean, yeah. and uh, and that's actually what what is what is great about the action in the first three uh, Indiana Jones films, and that's for me why the fourth one doesn't really work. Yeah, that you makes know? sense. And so, uh, and so you know, I'm happy uh, not to see another <laughs> Indiana Jones film with Harrison Ford as much as that part fits him like a glove. It's like in the same in the same way that I don't want Clint Eastwood to make another Dirty Harry film. Do you know what I mean? Beating the shit out of other old age pensioners in the Kurt home. Do you know what I mean? It used to be criminal. They could do a new But they I mean I guess they They could make a great film with Clint Eastwood yeah. as a as a as a as an old age pensioner Avenger. You know, that would be awesome. There's a whole different film to be made about he's a retired cop, he goes into a Kurt home and he realizes the gang of ten people who killed his partner are in the Kurt home as well. So he systematically takes them out. Now I'd pay good money to see that film. But I don't want That'd it to be, be a dirty Harry film. Uh, In fact, the more that I think about it, doesn't that film sound awesome? That sounds amazing. It sounds amazing. It? <laughs> did you ever watch Bubba Hotep? Oh yeah, what a great film! Oh god, god it just—I—I yeah, yeah. I, I was having yeah. flashbacks of Bubba Hotep. It's insane. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. There's not enough good. There's not enough good Kerr home action films. That's for sure. You know, there's I mean? not. There's not. You could yeah. Clint Eastwood would be the perfect guy for it. I want to see Mule. He would. I, I want to. I haven't seen it either, but I would love to see that film. I mean, I, I certainly loved a couple. I mean, it's ten years ago now. In fact, that's how long ago it was. But I loved Gran Torino when it came. Yeah, I loved Gran Torino as when it came out as well. It was uh, his movies have changed so much. He's he's more of a social commentary than he is yeah. showing these big action flicks that he used to. Of course, because I yeah. kind of feel like. I know that dirty, and this maybe this is sacrilegious. I know Dirty Harry is Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood is Dirty Harry, but they have so many of them. They could continue them with other people, like they did Bond, or they did, you know, they do other things. They could do that if they wanted to, and it could be interesting. Yeah, yeah, right on. Because I love yeah, Deadpool. Yeah. Deadpool, I think, was my favorite. And it's funny because it has a young Jim Carrey in Deadpool. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he plays the uh, the movie actor, doesn't he? The the rock star. A rock star, rock yeah. star, that's it. Yeah. yeah, they're they're doing welcome to the he's lip syncing welcome to the jungle. 
Yeah, he's shooting a video, isn't he? That's it. Yeah, yeah. I, just, I, I think that yeah. it's the scene with the the uh, with the uh, remote control car that got me when I was yeah, a kid. Yeah, that's it. That's that's exactly right. I was like, oh my god, I yeah. love this. And then I went back and watched all the old ones, and it just really got my mom's goat. Oh yeah, I mean the thing is, I mean. Deadpool, and then before it, Sudden Impact, which is a huge film in its day. Yeah. And then before it, The Enforcer, they're all entertaining films, uh, which become increasingly ridiculous, by the way. Sudden Impact is almost nonsensical. It kind of just replays Dirty Harry as a kind of de- Death Wish-style Avenger. Right. But actually, the first two are brilliant. Oh, films. yeah. I mean, the, the first one is a masterwork. Dirty Harry is, is a great film by any stretch of the imagination. But actually, Magnum Force, there's so many good things in that. You know that's that's a brilliant. F- it's the scene where they're at the was it the gravel pit, and he does, and the guy is getting up, and he's got the magnum on him, and he and he does and he does the whole thing. I know what you're thinking, I, punk. Yeah, yeah. How many shots? If I six shots oh. or any five, yeah. Oh my god! And you yeah. watch that, you're just like you. You feel like you're in that scene, and I don't think anybody yeah, I- could deliver it like Clint Eastwood did. Oh no, and it flips around the initial scene. It's got and and that that guy uh, Andy, whatever his name is, who plays Scorpio, he's just so brilliantly cast. Yeah, you know what I mean. He's so jumpy and out there. Yeah, uh, I I think uh, I mean it is a fantastic film. It really is. But it, what's what's interesting about uh, ma- the many interesting things about Magnum Force, but one is that it it kind of flips the first film on its head. So really, in the first movie, he's completely fighting the system. And by the way. In in the first Dirty Harry, even though there are five Dirty Harry movies, it's quite clear that at the end of Dirty Harry, what he's actually doing is resigning from the police force and leaving. Right. Yeah, because the final scene after he's taken Scorpio out is like he takes his uh, detective shield out in disgust and chucks it in the river and walks away. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because if you remember, the whole thing is he becomes discredited two-thirds of the way through and then he has to fight against his own department and everybody else. And that's him definitely going, screw it. Uh, until obviously they all looked at the box office receipts and, and it was like, yeah, okay, well, he's obviously just having a bad day. Clearly he just rocked back into the precinct the next day. You know what I mean? And 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 so what then happens in Magnum Force is that it's, you know, it's a whole bunch of recruits who become this kind of vigilante unit, but they go too far for him. So he sets himself up in opposition to them. And, and what gets misremembered, I think, about Magnum Force are the kind of subtleties of it. Because there's a kind of great sequence were well first of all what's interesting right is that the the recruits who are who become this kind of vigilante squad and I'm sorry it's a massive spoiler you don't know that first right. but I'm assuming you know this movie's like 40 years yeah, old and so we're, you and, you're, seen it. and we're on spoiler country so it's okay yeah yeah oh, oh, yes of course yes of course there's clues in the name as I've said before I should have should have realized yeah I'll stop feeling bad so so the four recruits are are played by um Robert Urich who uh, went on to play Dan Tanner in Vegas and uh, and Spencer for hire on TV. Yeah, a TV star who was on countless like drama shows over the years. He died quite young, actually, in his 50s. He was in a Western series called Lazarus Man. And then there was uh, Tim Matheson, who uh, starred in a bunch of TV shows and is the guy who plays Otter in uh, National Lampoon's Animal House, the leader of the fraternity, yeah. And then there's uh, David Soul, who, uh, who was... Um, who who was Hutch in Starsky and Hutch. So there's all these guys who went on to become big TV stars are actually the uh, are actually the uh, the the young good-looking vigilante cops that uh, that Harry goes up against. 
And at the point where he kind of realises, begins to suspect that it's them who are, are responsible for what's going on, there's a sequence in the middle of the film where one of them is a real sharpshooter and they do the kind of the San Francisco Police Department annual shooting cup. And for the last like five years, Harry has won it every year. Yeah. And they have a kind of like a, you know, thing we've got to go through the firing range and, you know, bad guys jump out and all that kind of stuff. You've got to take everybody down. And, um, and, one of these guys, I think it's the David Soul character, is so good that he actually beats Dirty Harry. And it's a bit kind of like, oh, you know, my God, like, yeah, you know, Harry like misses a kind of target at the end. And um, and then what you realise is, is that he's actually thrown the competition so he can go back and dig David Soul's bullet out of where it's actually landed so he can go and get it analysed versus the guys in the vigilante squad who've been executing criminals. And that's how he gets them. That's and right. he does it by... Uh, does it by putting his own ego to one side? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's a you know that's a really nice like part of that plot. That Magnum Force is written by John Milius, is a guy who went on to uh, to write Apocalypse Now. Oh, really? And became and was a great director in his own right. Wow. Yeah. Well, it'd be yeah, interesting what, what, when you think of the because you're a big movie file and you even had your own show on UK mm-hmm. introducing movies. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have like a top ten that you're like, if you're gonna, these are the ones that you need to know. Oh man, yeah, of films that you know. Do you mean in terms of favorite films I recommend for people? Yeah, if you want to get a, a good kind of you know set of cinema basics. Yeah, I do. I mean, my my list is is very personal because like Sumner's it's, own it's, Centurion. It's stuff that's list. important to me, and it it wouldn't necessarily be as meaningful to anybody else. Right. But if people ask me, yeah, I mean, the ones I could bring to mind. Um, very quickly uh are some will be obvious and some won't be so uh in my kind of top rec top recommendation 10 would be uh citizen kane by orson wells which is you know a big critical favorite a big critical darling yeah for years and years it was regularly you know voted as being like uh, the best movie ever made it doesn't really occupy that position these days because of the you know the younger movie audiences but i mean it's still in, it's still in the the uh it's still in the top 10 you know what i mean isn't the importance but of that, that movie in the way that he built it and the way that he shot it Absolutely, it's 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 absolutely um, groundbreaking. But the interesting thing is, it's still fantastic. You can watch it, and there's a whole bunch of movie techniques that he introduced. But it's still a fantastic film. Um, I would also recommend, personally, for, from the kind of uh, um, black and white era, I'd also recommend the Howard Hawks version of um, The Big Sleep starring uh, starring um, Humphrey Bogart and Laurel Bacall. Oh, yeah. There are a number of great Bogart and Bacall films, but that's, that is a really great one. Um, there's a film, there's there's a, uh, there's It's a Wonderful Life with James Stewart, Yeah, the, which is, is well known as a kind of Christmas classic. Yep. Have you, have you guys ever seen that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, who oh, names yeah. their kids yeah. oh, yeah. Zuzu Pedals? I just... Yeah, I, okay, exactly. I never got that. Yeah, exactly. I was like, you named your yeah. kid Zuzu Pedal? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh so there's so there's that. That's a great film. There's another great um uh James Stewart film from a very similar period of time. Uh, it's made within a year of uh, of that movie actually. And it's called Call Northside Seven Seven. Yeah, oh. and it's about have you ever seen it? I so I used to work in a video store. I used to run a Hollywood video, so I've seen a lot of movies. Oh, fantastic. And, um I anything with him in it 
I'm going to watch. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, like Mr. Smith goes to Washington and yeah. you know, what's funny during that era from the 19, I think it's the early forties. My favorite movie of that era is with Fred McMurray and it's double indemnity. Yeah. Oh God. It's an amazing film. Oh. Brilliant. It's fantastic. It, 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 you watch fantastic. it today. That's, it stands that, up. That's one of the great film. No, that hasn't aged a lick that film. Yeah. It's fantastic. Have you ever watched that Johnny? You, I oh, would I highly suggest looking up Double Indemnity, and it's old enough now that you could probably just find it on YouTube and giving it a watch. It is about a salesman that comes to a house, and he sells insurance, and he um, meets with the, the wife, and she sed- basically she, she seduces him into helping her murder her husband. But before they do, oh. they take out an insurance policy, and Double Indemnity pays double. So if you die a certain way, oh, it's 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 a great film all oh. about uh, obsession and yeah. and how a fundamentally good person is is like you know uh, lust lead and and love lead him to do things that he wouldn't normally Who do. Was and the, he uh, Stanwick, yeah. Barbara Stanwick is Barbara Stanwick oh. is is the female. Lead. She's amazing. Yeah. She's, she's amazing in that film. She's amazing in that film. Um. Yeah, and so and so actually, Northside Seven Seven Six, called Northside Seven Seven Seven, is uh, is one of the first uh, kind of. So so basically, it's about a guy who's been wrongfully imprisoned, and uh, James Stewart is a crusading reporter uh, who uh, who actually manages. It basically, it's all set in Chicago, and and he's he's the reporter who dedicates his career to try and get this guy's being wrongfully imprisoned out of jail but how he does it without going into any more kind of detail is really is really using what would then have been cutting edge technology that nobody had thought nobody else had thought to use and it's just got a brilliant denouement scene uh, where it all kind of gets wrapped up it's 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 a great film and I, I, I completely recommend that. And then I, I don't know, you might have seen some of these, but uh, you might have seen some of these, Kenrick, I don't know, but yeah. I'm a big fan of um, Sam Fuller, who's uh, a hugely uh, melodramatic filmmaker um, who worked, his, his peak output was in the 1950s. And um, he was a former journalist and a former infantryman. He'd um, he'd like fought in the Big Red One in World War Two, oh, wow. so it interrupted his writing career. And then he came back from World War Two, and he was he had a very very melodramatic style. And he made a couple of great war movies during the uh, during the Korean War. Two of them star an actor called Gene Reynolds, and uh, and one's called The Steel Helmet, and the the um, the uh, I can't bring the second one quite to mind at the moment, but the steel helmet is the first of those two. And uh, the, the steel helmet is basically, it starts with a close-up of, um, of, of Gene Reynolds as this, uh, as this um, really hard-bitten GI, you know, it, having a really, really tough time in uh, in the Korean War. And uh, and his, his helmet has got a bullet hole in it, yeah? And uh, and you know um, basically he's the last surviving. I'm saying Gene Reynolds. Wow, completely the wrong Gene. It's Gene Evans. Sorry guys. Um, so so yeah, Gene Gene Evans, who is this really bulky sort of American actor. Um, so he plays this character like Sergeant Zach, and he's the, he, his whole unit's been wiped out. 
And uh, it's about how he basically gets on track to find another unit and has to work his way through sort of enemy-infested territory in Korea. And um, it, that's that's a great film. There's a, there's a follow-up also starring Gene Evans, uh, also set in the Korean War during the winter, which is called Fixed Bayonet. And uh, and he plays another hard-bitten sergeant in that. In fact, he, the character he plays in Fixed Bayonet is called Sergeant Rock. So you know, yeah. uh, it's. Uh, I think that just happens to be. I think that just happens to be a. Um, that film was made in 1951, before Sergeant Rock was created. But I just think it happens to be a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but again, you know, kind of these movies do have a very um, 1950s, 1960s DC comics war war comics vibe about them. So those all those DC war books, like by Joe Kubert. Written, you know, drawn, but the covers were drawn by Drew Kubert, and they're mainly written by Bob Kaniger. These films have that same kind of heavily melodramatic feel to them. Um, you probably might have heard of. of uh, he also made an amazing film about um, about essentially low life criminals, uh, which was called Pick Up on South Street, and Pick Up on South Street was made in the mid 50s it was made in 1953 actually and uh, and basically it's about a bunch of low level criminals who kind of get in the middle of a bunch of communist spies and a bunch of like federal agents and uh, and basically the lead character is 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 played by Richard Widmark and it's one of his earliest kind of like starring roles and he's a total low level scumbag to the point where when when he becomes like the only person who can help the agents out he like refuses to do it he's completely unpatriotic he's just he's just in it for himself do you know what i mean yeah um uh, but and 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 it's about how he has a transformation during the course of the film, not necessarily for uh, for um, uh, patriotic reasons, but for personal reasons because of things that happen. But that's a great kind of it's like the ultimate B movie, for want of a better description. That's awesome. He actually wrote and directed the Big Red one with uh, Lee uh, Martin. That's what I was going to go on to say. Yeah, he did. Yeah, and that was that was pretty much his final film. And, and that was based on his own experiences in uh, in in the Big Red One, and essentially the the character who plays the uh, the analog of him in that movie is is because is Robert Carradine because it's a bunch of um who's David one of David Carradine's younger brother or younger younger half brothers, so that film is basically. Lee Marvin is is the sergeant in charge of the unit, and then the young soldiers are played by a selection of people, including Robert Carradine and including Mark Hamill. Yeah. I remember I've I've seen the Big Red One uh, quite a few times. Oh, it's such a great film! And there's an extended edition which is really good. So, true story. Or what Sam Fuller used to do is he never used to say action. He uh, instead he used to like fire his uh, his his um like war service pistol instead. <laughs> oh, we <laughs> so couldn't get away with that nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, you, you couldn't do it now. But everybody who filmed for him said, you know, whenever you, uh, one of his scenes had started, you were totally on edge because it just like fired off a gun, and that's that's how it all began. Um, yeah, he, he's he's such a fascinating dude. There's a documentary. This is available on YouTube, right? And um, and it it's called uh, oh man, it's called something like uh, the typewriter, the rifle, and the movie camera. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that is a documentary about his life 
which is uh, basically narrated by uh, Tim Robbins and um, and uh, Quentin Tarantino, and I would I would totally recommend that. It's a fascinating. Yeah, it's called the typewriter, the rifle, and the movie camera. You can get it on. Uh, you can get it on. Um, it'll be. It's up on YouTube or whatnot. It's about an hour long, uh, and it's it's fascinating. And it's it's essentially it, it's like it's Tim Robbins going. You know, I've just sat down and watched a whole bunch of Sam Fuller films. Why didn't I know he existed before now? It, it, it's it's films are hugely inf- influential on the way cinema comes about today because it's much more. It, it, it's it's very very classic and melodramatic, rather than you know rather than the way that seventies films were put together, you know in a, in a very kind of uh, you know that classic Alt, Robert Altman way of filmmaking yeah. where you get a film like like Mash, which has all the dialogues like looped over itself like it is in real life, right, you know, right. and uh, and you know the narrative isn't as clear. Sam Fuller is kind of the opposite of that. Sam Fuller wants to take you on a kind of through line. Wasn't Altman really known for like the single shot? You know what I mean? He would tend to do yeah. a lot of yeah. one, like one take shots in lo- for yeah. long periods yeah. of time. Like I know like one of his last films and it had Ryan Phillippe as a, um, in it. God, it was, it was like a weird murder mystery, uh, in a in a rich house, I can't remember the name of it. Oh, I know it's Gosford Park. Yeah, yeah. Does I think that that is a. By the way, that is a fantastic. Yeah, I think that opens fantastic. up with like a ten minute shot, and you're yeah. just like, geez. Of them, of the, they're all preparing for dinner, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, 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 yeah. That that is an awesome. Thing. I always think that's incredible I, when you have because the fluidness of the scene is so tight compared to when it's like a, a lot of angled shots coming from all over the because. Like, I know Martin Scorsese does, he'll do a fluid shot or a single shot every once in a while. But he does a lot of, like, like the scene in Taxi Driver where, where, um, what's his, <laughs> De Niro is on the ground or in the, in the, uh, in the apartment and he's bleeding. And they do that amazing yeah. scene where it's like from the far corner of the room and you have this angle that you just don't, I don't think you ever really saw it like that and you know and it was you know and that's always cool and it looks nice but I I really like it when it's almost um the camera is following the characters and it makes you because it, it kind of makes you feel like you're in the movie more and in the story and a part of it as opposed to watching it as a as you know it's not well you know it's just an audience I mean- member Robert Altman was, was well known for being experimental with stuff like that. What's fascinating about um, Gosford Park is, is that he essentially shot that movie uh, with two cameras, both of which were like always moving in opposite directions to each other. So, so basically, the whole cast are all these English actors whose initial training is all is all in theatre and whatnot, right? So they're used to really extended takes. So that's how he filmed it. You know, uh, the, a lot of the people in that movie were more theatre actors than were movie actors. So, so he constantly had two cameras on the go at all times. And then him and his editor had to edit edit all that footage from a dual set of footage all the time. That's why it has such an interesting look. Yeah. I'll tell you another thing about Gosford Park. I mean, Gosford Park, I wouldn't want to give it away to any because it's a fascinating mystery. It's a, it's a good and movie. And it's an almost... It's almost pitch perfect film, but you know what it's responsible for is Downton Abbey, because the guy that Robert Altman got to to write Gosford Park 
was a fe- was a guy called Julian Fellows. Uh, in fact, Julian Fellows might have created the script in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and uh, but I've got a feeling that uh, they were put together to develop the film together, right? Okay. And uh, and Julian Fellows is the guy who created uh, Downton Abbey. You know, so after it done Gosford Park, he's like, mm, you know, this whole milieu it might be. I could make a TV series out of this. Uh, and and you know, the, uh, Downton Abbey isn't really a murder mystery per se, but is very much set in that world of of British privilege at, at the turn of the last century. Do you know? What yeah, I mean? Johnny. Johnny, are you yes. familiar with Robert Altman's work? Not. I mean, I know who he is. I'm not. So you know, some that. of his. Movies that you know, he's done. I don't know. He's probably he's probably directed over thirty movies, but he did Mash. That was him. Short, yeah, yeah. shortcuts okay, in okay. the early nineties. The Player in the early nineties with uh, yeah. what's his name, uh, Tim Robbins. And but I think my favorite. I loved Mash because it's just it's so funny and it's just ridiculous. But I think my favorite Altman movie oh, was The great. Long Goodbye. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, and it, it very interesting. I mean, that's such an interesting film, yeah. uh, the long goodbye. Because classic fans of Chandler for years and years used to really hate that. They everybody loved the the big sleep as an adaptation of 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 um of Philip Marlowe, and everybody loved the Dick Powell version of Farewell, My Lovely, which is called Murder, My Sweet. Everybody loved those movies. But for years and years, among like hardcore Raymond Chandler fans, a lot of people never liked The Long Goodbye. They didn't like that kind of 70s slacker interpretation. I personally, I have to say, I've always loved it. And and now, like as often, it's happened so often, like um, critical opinion has come round to what you and I right, think, mate. Right. You know, now it's like revered as a great film. Yeah. One of the one of the interesting things in that ahead movie, of its time. Right? Oh, it's way ahead of its time. The the um the score for that movie is uh, is written by John Williams. It's one of the earliest film scores that he did, and he wrote a particular refrain, a particular kind of melody, and then what he does is everywhere Marlowe goes in that film. He hears it, that refrain, in a different style. So, you know, when he's at yeah. a Mexican restaurant, he hears a Mexican version of it. And then when he's in an elevator, he hears an elevator music version of it. Do you know what I mean? Once you're tuned into that, you notice it in every scene. It's it's really it's not in your face, but it's really nicely done. That's that's cool. You know, we're talking about long shot movies or one shot movies. There's a movie that my wife and I watched on Netflix called The Wedding Party. Ah, uh, great the entire film. Th- it's- yeah. Yeah, it's it's two hours of one shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's... They did a good job on that. Yeah. Are you talking about the Altman film? Or I'm not sure it? who made it. I just, it, it's, it came out a couple years ago, and it's one, it's one shot that's just... It's, it's, it's at a reception, and the entire film was just one long shot, one continuous shot. Yeah. Which movie? The, the, reason, the reason I'm asking, mate, is because, um, is because uh, he famously... Um, I th- I think it's the Altman film you're talking about. It's called uh, it's called A Wedding. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there is a film called A Wedding Party as well. It's like an African film, but um, A Wedding. I actually saw that. It, that came out in 1978. I saw it at the cinema in a Crosby in Liverpool uh, when I was 14, and I was the only person in the cinema. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. That's. That when, I, when I saw a Fly the Navigator with my dad, we were the only. I saw a Fly the Navigator. Yeah, there we go. That was, that was I awesome. saw that. I think there was a yeah. couple people in there, but that was it. That's that's the first movie I remember seeing in theaters was Fly the oh, Navigator. Compliance. So, so do you know what he did, Johnny? That that you'll know is Robert Altman directed Popeye. 
with Robin Williams. He did. Oh, yep. He did. And you know, Papa, I've, I've, I've been to that Reef with the Octopus fight in Hawaii. Really? Cool. Wow, amazing. That, that was in Hawaii? I didn't know that yeah, they shot a, that movie in Hawaii. They shot parts of it, yeah. So, like, they, well, a lot of, uh, on Kauai, the, the first, the most northern um, island of Hawaii you can go to, there's this whole north north side of the island, which is, like, where they shoot a lot of things. Like, Jurassic Park was shot there. All the, all the islands you see of Jurassic Park was shot there. Popeye was shot there. A lot of things get shot around that site because there's just nothing there but cliffs and, and oh, gullies nice. and, and all this, you know, cool stuff. So, guys, have either of you ever seen um, the film he made af- immediately after MASH, which is called Brewster McLeod? I don't think I've seen that one. No, I have not. Okay, so um, I'm not going to tell you too much about it, but you should definitely see it. It's like this kind of experimental comedy he made immediately after MASH, and uh, it's fucking nuts. It's, 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 I, remember, I remember seeing it on TV when I was a kid. It totally blew my mind, and it basically... Uh, do you know who the actor Bud Court is? Have you ever? Uh, Sounds familiar. He's a guy that Sounds familiar. he'll be familiar to you if you see him. He's he uh, always he's he's still alive now. He's always played like really slight weird guys. Oh, he's the lead in Harold and Maude. If you oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah that I, guy I, from I, Harold I'm and Maude. Yeah, you got right it now. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, Brewster McLeod is basically uh, it's he's he's like he is he's. A character played by Bud Court, and he's kind of like a, a young sort of reclusive guy who uh, who lives in the fallout shelter inside the Houston Aerodrome, and he's obsessed with being able to fly, and he's got design for building himself a pair of like wings, and I'll just leave that as the jumping off point. That's where it kind of starts, and it's just got a vibe unlike anything else I've ever seen, with the possible exception of the movie. Um, the Phantom of the Paradise, if you've ever seen that. Does that mean anything, guys? The Phantom of the Paradise? Uh, not, I okay, recognize so, that. So I'll tell you what it is. The Phantom of the Paradise is like a kind of like um, fu- slightly future dystopian version of um, of uh, oh, The Phantom of the Opera. But it's it's by Brian De Palma. And, oh. <laughs> and, and Phantom of the Paradise and, and uh, Bruce McLeod are not similar films they have an energy to them which is quite similar you should watch both of them though because the thing they both have in common is they're fucking nuts and the the only other film i can think of that's like the two of them but is again different but if you're gonna like do like a like a sort of a, a late night treble bill at a repertory cinema these would be three great films to put together it would be uh brewster mcleod and phantom of the paradise and um the rocky horror picture oh. So we're talking nice. about that kind of feeling that that there's a through line with all yeah. three of them. It's kind of like what Ed Wood was trying to be like. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. But Ed Wood is kind of almost like too self conscious about itself. These things are the and are about somebody who made those kinds of films. This is the original DNA of it all. Yeah, yeah. I'll check that out. That's hey, I love that kind guys, of guys. And. I know you did an instalment about this, but I, I've been I've been working and haven't had the chance to listen to it. What did you guys think of Captain Marvel? Oh, the the uh, okay because of Shazam's out, I I I I keep going back and forth. Yeah, yeah. So Captain Marvel, it was good. It was good. It was it was a lot of fun. I don't believe it's the best written Marvel film. You know what I mean? I think there's a lot of hype oh, around uh, it. No. It, it, I agree. I think it, I thought it was great, and I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought it was going yeah, to. Yeah, I liked it. Um, it's it just I, I thought it was great. I, I kind of wish they would have just done uh, Monica Rambo. 
and done the original Captain Marvel. Well, you know, quote unquote, sorry, Johnny, the quote unquote original Captain Marvel. Yeah. <laughs> because um, I just think, you know, why not? You know, and it, it and she was a cool character. And I think that's who Rogue actually kills to get her powers on accident. It's either her or the original Miss Marvel. It's one of the two. Interesting. I can't remember off the top of my head. So I just thought it was, you know, interesting. I I I love um Brie Larson in almost everything she does. Like I really enjoyed Skull Island. And I thought she oh, was yeah. great in that. I love the whole scene where she's taking pictures of the natives and she has this big massive uh grin on her face. And I was like, wow, that she just glows off the screen when she's doing that scene to me. And I just kind of felt like she went through the motions on that sh- show and not like i've seen other people like they're just like what you're nuts there's things and i was like i don't know it just that's how i felt when i watched the movie but going back and thinking about it and and watching it a second i liked it better the second time i watched it as opposed to the first yeah i mean i i, I really like her and i thought she was great i didn't have any issues yeah. with her performance and there were many things yeah. in it that i really loved i mean i think i, I think you can't now that they've been kind of 20 plus marvel movies yeah. You can't play the the expectation that the that each new one is going to be the best one right. ever because it isn't because you know for for each new one to be the best one ever there'd have to be every one would have to be the same quality of say Captain America the Winter Soldier oh, that's, you know that's I mean? so good and, and and it's it's impossible to hit that quality all the yeah. time you know what I mean I mean, I would I would say the great thing about the Marvel universe is, is that the batting average is very high and yeah. amidst that pantheon of 20 films there are very few bad ones yeah. yeah I mean I would say for me I would say the weakest are probably uh the incredible hulk and um Thor the Dark yeah. World they're the weakest but I still yeah, there's same. still lots of things in them that I enjoy do you know what yeah. I mean and then and then and then when they peak and they do something great, they're, they're, they're just phenomenal. Infinity I mean, of, War was of like the kind ridiculous. I thought Infinity War was fantastic, yeah. and uh, I also I also really loved uh, Spider Man Homecoming. I really yeah. loved Thor Ragnarok. I really loved Doctor Strange. I thought that was great. yeah. You know, as as an introduction to a character, I thought it was really good. So their batting average has been. I- has been very strong. I wanted Captain Marvel to be longer. I think at the end of the day, that was my problem. They 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 went so fast over some things that I was like, I, I really, if you're gonna do an origin story, I want it to be an origin story, or just get the origin story like they did, like how they did Spider Verse. You know, I loved how they did the origin uh, yeah, on that. They yeah. said, okay, this is the deal. That's da, da, great, da, da, da. That's such a great yeah, point. and then go into it. And I wish they would have done that, or give me like a really gritty. Like, I, I I love the movies that are a slow burn at times. You know what I mean? And I think her character, that, that movie could have been an amazing slow burn and then building up to it. But I overall, I loved it. I mean, overall, I really liked it. I think the biggest problem, I think the biggest problem with that movie, though, was like, well, while I love Jude Law, his character, like, there was never a doubt that he was a bad guy. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Sure. Never was he considered he could have been a good guy in that movie. So. I mean, part of that is that this here's the thing, right? If you know your comic book lore, there are certain things in that movie that are just aren't a surprise when they happen, you know? Yeah. And and what I realized is that I thought, I wondered why they'd been very cagey about naming him as Jon Rog on the lead up to the film. And I thought, well, for some reason, they're hiding like Marvel's identity because the obvious thing would be well we're not telling you his name 
because he is Marvel. But but uh, but they couldn't tell you he was Yon Rog either because the minute you the minute you say he's Yon Rog, well he's definitely not Marvel, which is what everybody would have thought. And it also means he's the fucking bad guy. Yeah. And of course, the reason they didn't, that's exactly why they didn't name him before you actually saw the film. Because the big reveal, of course, is that they've flipped who Marvel is. And uh, which is something I liked. I really liked that, actually. I thought that was a clever use of keeping Marvel's presence in there. Um, yeah, I thought it was. I thought I liked Marvel. I, I liked how they did that. But he is he is one hundred percent. He might as well have bad guys stamped on his forehead. Right, right. <laughs> you know? I'll yeah, watch yeah. anything with the net bending in it. Yeah, I mean, she's phenomenal. She's awesome. She's, 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 she's a great I, talent. I didn't understand the backlash of the whole. Oh, why they make her? Why they make Marvel a girl? And I'm just like, man, wait, who cares? Oh, mate. It's the same fucking idiots yeah. who've got a pro. It's it's just a. The, I, here's the thing: there's no real backlash because that movie's. If it doesn't make finish, if it doesn't make a billion dollars at the end of this weekend, right? It'll have made a billion dollars by the end of next yeah. week. There's there's no actual backlash, and this is the interesting thing. I think if you live in the space that you guys live in and I yeah. live in, if you're interested in this stuff and you read read you know online news articles, you know that's obviously got this. Like there's there's quite a vocal bunch of middle class white dudes who've still got on an, an issue with inclusivity and and you know whether that, whether that's you know race based or, or based on gender or what or sexual preference or whatever and because the, the, they've got nothing else to write about they're quite like loud and vocal but in fact they're an incredible minority these guys do you know yeah. what I mean and, and, just and, loud. and just loud. actually you know I, I the only place I ever see things like a backlash against uh, 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 Captain Marvel Twitter is when I turn my it's when I turn my laptop on you know what I mean and look at shit online. When I actually speak to anybody, I mean, I know that, for example, my daughter, who's massively into comic book culture and massively into music culture, and she's like 19, her and all her mates loved Captain Marvel. They absolutely thought it was fantastic. Oh, awesome. And they all loved the Black, they all loved Black Panther as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, you know, all all this hoo-ha about, there was some hoo-ha about Black Panther and all this, all this stuff which makes me laugh to this day about the boycotting Captain Marvel thing. Well, look at the effect that that had. Less than nothing. Yeah. Do you know if I mean? anything, it, it made it, people it, want to go see it more. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, these guys have just got to get real. You know what I mean? They're well, just, there's, they're there's just, a big part of me, Sumner, that thinks that they they claim that they understand that they want to get back to, I don't know what they want to get back to of like comics in the eighties and seventies and sixties or something. And I, and I don't get that because if you know your comic book lore and you've been reading it your whole life, then you know that change happens all the time and they make yep. drastic yep. changes to major characters all the time. And yeah, one of the right. biggest one of the biggest bitches. They don't. We don't want. We don't want politics in our comics. We don't want politics in our comics. People on Twitter will sit there and argue with like Kurt Busiek and Gail Simone and other, all these other writers and like Fabian Nietzsche and like, oh, we want to go back to the Silver Age and the Bronze Age where there's no politics. And they're like, all of those books. Big time. The, the, the stuff with politics. Shows aside. Stuff with politics. I mean, you know, it's it's Stan Lee and his team, Roy Thomas, all those guys came out against so much stuff. At the, at the beginning of the seventies, you know that that uh, that they they were so progressive in their thinking. This, you know, we we want to go back to the way it was. It's ridiculous. By the way, I think one of the most pernicious and unpleasant things I've seen is how much that kind of lunatic fringe of you know extreme right wing white boy comics fans don't um, 
you have this problem with Gail Simone. I actually don't get that at all because Gail Simone, I, for, for my money, is one of the great contemporary comic book writers. And I haven't, I I haven't done anything other than massively enjoy anything she's ever done. And her stuff as a baseline is very good. And when she's on her game, she's fucking have phenomenal. I mean, read her- have you ever read Secret Six? Yeah, Secret Six is amazing. Oh, my it's, God. That's one of the best comic books of the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, it's phenomenal. She is a massive talent. I like Mark Wade as a massive her, talent. Do you know? Her mar- her work yeah. on Conan yeah. Wonder Woman was amazing. I, I was, oh, yeah. I, it's I was, just brilliant. I was disheartened because I, I think when she started that endeavor, she didn't know – she wasn't under the – she didn't know that eventually Conan was going away and going back to Marvel because Dark Horse had to have known by the time she started that yeah. that they were losing the license. And uh, she didn't know because I was like, oh, what's going on? And she actually responded on Twitter. She's like, yeah, it's just, it's done. I mean, it is what it is. And it was just too bad because it that was a fun, that was just a really fun read, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, she she, she does great stuff. Uh, and that's a great book. Uh, Secret Six is a phenomenal book. Uh, Birds of Prey. That was that was great. That was really, really yeah, good. I think anybody who can yeah, come up with- Such, such great series. I think anybody who can, when it comes to writers- and you can find somebody that can piss off a whole group of people because of their writing is so good. That's a that's that's a talent that you should be really supporting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think she's got a fantastic eye for dialogue and a brilliant feel for character. Uh, and all, all of that on top of the fact that her feel for narrative is great. So that's everything you want in a comic book yeah. author. I mean, I, I think and, she, and she's, she's the, super nice to talk yeah, to. Yeah, she's the best. She is the best. Uh, I, I, and, uh, you know, I, I, when I see some of the interaction these clowns have with her and some of the things they say about it, it's just like, man, you're, you're just not even in even close to what's really happening in the world. Not even close to what's really happening in like global popular culture. Yeah. And, you know, the, you know, the change in progression is a good thing. You know what I mean? It really is. And, and, Culture evolves constantly. Culture evolves constantly, and that—that's what. It's like language evolves constantly. Yep. Um, that's what. That's what you know makes these things fascinating. There you go. I think that is a perfect segue well, to actually wrap this conversation up. And and right on. Hold up. Hold on. Hold on. Uh-oh. Hold on. Hold on. I want to clarify two things quick. Uh, Rogue got her powers from Miss Marvel, not from. Um, that's what I Monica. said. Though uh, I wasn't good. too sure okay. if it was Captain Marvel or Miss Marvel. Yeah. 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 I'm, just confirming that for anybody listening is going to be like tweeting out. Yeah. Stuff, oh, what the hell? Um, and uh, Captain Marvel right now is at 990 wow. million. So it'll definitely, it'll definitely cross That's a billion amazing. by next week. Yeah. Good for right them. On, of course. So, you know, well, well done with the boycott there, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, way to get with the program. Good job, guys. Good job. Yeah, yeah. You made it leaps just, and bounds. Just, <laughs> yeah. Here's, here's the mission for anybody who listens to your podcast over the next week. Go and see Captain Marvel again and go and buy some Gail Simone collected edition. There you go. There you go. You can there you, you could literally you couldn't do anything worse than collect than uh, get some Gail Simone anything better than get any Gail Simone collected well, editions. She is a fucking genius, I'm telling you. Pick up pick up clean room, it is phenomenal. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Well, she, she created a agreed. whole concept that everybody knows now with the refrigerator clause. Or what do you call it, Johnny? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll I, I mean, you yeah, say yeah. that, people know exactly what you're Fridging. talking about. Fridging. Fridging is totally, yeah, which which they're guilty of in Deadpool 2, for yeah. example. You know, and, and fair are. enough, you know, that, that those writers say they hadn't heard that term. But as soon as it was explained to them, they like, hands up, oh, shit, yeah, we did yeah. do that. Do you know what yeah. I mean? 
Yeah. yeah. No, I think she's she she's she's a voice for a very important and a positive change. You know, and you know the more you know the more that we all realise. That, that we're all the same, you know, and there's no point in like subsects, you know, people, human beings are human, human beings, irrespective of, you know, race, creed, gender, political philosophy. We've all got to get on with each other. And here's the other thing, by the way, if there's a particular creator out there that you don't like, that's okay. There's plenty of shit being written and drawn every month, you know, you can always find stuff. You can always find stuff to enjoy. It is not like every book published by the majors is politically aligned and is identical. It just isn't. And anybody saying otherwise really isn't reading them. They're just reacting to stuff they haven't seen, which, by the way, looping back is that, that, you know, that sort of very rarefied extremist fanboy response to Captain Marvel. This is all from people who haven't even seen the movie. And I've got no time for that at all. Yeah. No. If you want to have a, a, a reasoned uh, sort of uh, erudite conversation about a piece of art, whether it's a movie, a book, whatever, a play, a musical, that's fucking awesome. I've, I, I love doing yeah. that. But don't criticize stuff before you've even seen it. That's just it's nonsensical. Stupid. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. There we guys go. Well, guys, thanks for finding the time to talk to me again. I, I very much appreciate it. No, thank it. you for coming on. We love having you on, and and, and we're going to have many, many more conversations with Andrew Sumner of Titan. And, man, Sumner, thanks again, man. Oh, uh, or, thank you Jack, so much for coming on. Oh, no, thank you for making the time for me. Always my pleasure. And now we figured out how, how to have this hands-across-the-sea conversation. We can do it as often as awesome. we want. Because I've just realized we've got to the end, and we haven't even really talked about any topics whatsoever about what's going on in 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 popular culture in the last two or three weeks. This has been the least news-led conversation we've ever had. I know. It was, it's like being one long, colossal, colossal, very fun digression. Yeah, I love it. You know I, I mean? love it. I love it. I know. We went from everything from movies to Gail Simone and everything in between. Yeah, it's awesome. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How how'd you get how'd you get from the other, the non-Raiders Indiana Jones films are very disappointing to Gail Simone is a right. genius in 10 Easy Lessons. During this this conversation, that's how <laughs> that's you do exactly it. right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. You take we'll care of yourselves. Soon. Thanks, Andy. T- take yeah, Andy. See you soon. Take guys. You have too. a great day. All the best. All right. Well, thanks for joining. I hope you guys enjoyed that. It was amazing, right? The guy was awesome. Well, I'm here alone. I'm going to go ahead and go to bed because it's getting late. But of course, you can hear us everywhere podcasts are heard. You can get a hold of us on almost all the social media that's out there. If we're not on your favorite one, just let us know. We'll get there as soon as we can. And you can always leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, that is 707-656-2080. Leave us a message. Tell us what you think. And as always, open the mind and read more.